We have uh, one engaged daughter. Now we have two engaged daughters. They're twins, so I guess it's only uh, right that they do things at about the same time in life. Uh, Lord have mercy. I thought paying for two perms in their hair was going to be tough. (laughs) Daughter Stephanie in Los Angeles uh, called to give us this news. And uh, the uh, young man that she's... Uh, engaged to is a fine godly young man from El Salvador speaks English very well much better than I speak Spanish uh, which my Spanish vocabulary has got about this many words basically (laughs) and uh, so my dear wife thinks we need to learn to speak Spanish so we can speak to him and his parents in their mother tongue so last week we had our first Spanish class we're going once a week on Monday nights down to the Watkin Community College, and from the looks of it, with a whole bunch of other people just like us in the class. Uh, and uh, on the first night, I was late getting there, partially because I didn't plan enough time, and partially because the one building we, our class was in was not labeled at the college. And so I'm driving around in circles, and I'm trying to call my wife, who I'm getting her uh, cell phone answering machine, and what I find out later is that's when she's getting the news that our daughter is engaged to this young fella. So she wasn't about to hang up on her to talk to me. So I'm driving around. Finally, I drive by, and she's there going... So we got into the class. So I'm, you know, and then you got to park, you know, way far away. So I got into the class about 10 minutes late. And by that time, the only thing the teacher was speaking was Spanish. I'm not kidding. All Spanish all the time. I'm going, yeah. <sighs> the teacher is a native Spanish speaker who also speaks English and uh, is a very good teacher. This kind of Language learning is called immersion. Really appropriate for a guy that's a Baptist. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Boom, you're right there, and it's all Spanish all the time, and you just kind of learn from listening, you know. So uh, we've learned a few new words this week, and if I can just get them in the right order, you know, I'll be in good shape. In the Gospel of John that we are studying on Sunday mornings, the Apostle John uses a classic method of of education, if you will, to write his book. God caused his scripture to be written with various literary forms. It's all to be taken literally. But what the Apostle John does in the, in the first half of chapter 1, and we are getting down toward the end of that section, is he introduces the whole book with what we would sort of call a thesis statement. When you write papers for college, they say up front, you know, you're going to give us an introduction in which you're going to tell us what you're going to tell us. And then in the body of the paper, you're going to tell us what you're going to tell us. And then at the end of it, you're going to tell us what you told us. And that's what John does. In John chapter 20, which is almost the end of the book, he says, now these things were written so that you might believe. And then he gives us what we might call an epilogue, that episode between Jesus and Peter, when Peter gets straightened around and uh, gets prepared for ministry. But we are now in this thesis statement, in this introduction to the book. 
And we are down to the end of verse 14 and down through verse 17 today. And so I want to read this section, verses 14 through 18, to give us the whole thought. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of Him and cried out, saying, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for He was before me. And of His fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Last week, as we considered the first part of verse 14, we understood uh, this concept of the incarnation of Christ. It means to be in flesh. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the eternal second person of the Trinity, took on human flesh. He is God. He is fully God. He also is fully human. He took on a full human nature. He existed in a dual existence that nobody has ever had, nobody ever had before him and nobody has ever had after him. He was a unique individual. And the reason he had that unique dual nature was because of the ministry he needed to do. He became incarnate, first of all, and foremost, so he could die. What we remember today is the death of Christ to pay for our sins. Without a full human body and human nature, in which he could demonstrate his moral perfection, and in which he could shed blood, without that there could be no payment for sin. Secondly, Christ became incarnate so he could fully understand us. The scripture says because he walked in our shoes, so to speak, he understands us fully and completely. He knows what it means to be tempted by sin. He knows what it means to be tested by difficult circumstances. He fully experienced it. In fact, I would suggest to you that he experienced temptation on a larger level than you ever have. Why? Because Matthew 4 teaches us, and so does Luke 4, that the the devil personally tempted him. And the thing you need to remember from Matthew chapter 4 is that it says, after those those days of temptation were over, it says the devil left him for a while. It does not say his temptation was overdone and he went on with his righteous life. He was consistently and constantly attacked by the devil so he knows what it means to be tempted by sin christ became incarnate so he could give us an example we rightly ask the question what would jesus do what would jesus think how would jesus respond in this situation we can look to the gospels for jesus as an example now we need to be careful there that's not his prime ministry Jesus came to be much, much more than an example. And that's why the number one thing we put on our list for his ministry is he came to die to pay for our sins. And then after we have received that gift of salvation, then he becomes our example. First, he must become our savior. Secondly, he must become our example. That's what we learned in the first part of John chapter 1, verse 14. Today, we're going to pick it up right at the end of verse 14 when it says, we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the father full of grace and truth verse 16 and of his fullness we have received i've called this today the the unique impact of christ 
The unique impact of Christ. And the first thing we understand here is very simply, Christ wholly possesses grace and truth. In his commentary on Colossians 1.19, John MacArthur said this, Jesus reigns supreme over the visible world, the unseen world, and the church. Paul sums up his argument in Colossians 1.19, quote, For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him. The word for fullness, John MacArthur goes on, was a term used by later Gnostics. Now the word Gnostic is spelled G-N-O-S-T-I-C-S. Gnostic. It was a way of thinking about the world that separated the material from the immaterial. And they basically said what matters in life is your spirit or your mind and your body doesn't matter. You can do whatever you want with your body because it doesn't matter. They also taught that the mind was how we would meditate our way back up the chain of emanations to get to the original God. Their theory went something like this. This world is evil. We can look around and see the evilness of this world. And so a, a holy God would not have created this evil world. Therefore, they say, what the original God did was he created another God, and he created another God, and he created another God down the chain of unknown told emanations until there was a God who created this world. And the way that you get salvation, quote-unquote, is to meditate your way back up the chain. And so they would see many gods in that list. And that is a, a basic concept in many religions today. And John MacArthur goes on to say this, the word for fullness was a term used by the later Gnostics to refer to the divine powers and attributes which they believed were divided among the various emanations. That is likely the sense in which the Colossian heretics used the term. Paul counters that false teaching by stating that all the fullness of the deity is not spread out in small doses to a group of spirits, but fully dwells in Christ alone. As he restated in Colossians 2.9, in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Now this is, this is a little bit of a challenging theological point, but it's very important. In Him, in Jesus, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. What's that mean? It means there is no other human being who possesses divine power. There is no other person who has ever lived or who ever will live who will possess the fullness of divine power. God said, I'm putting it all in my Son, Jesus Christ. Boom! It's all there. We read it this way in John 1.14. He was full of grace and truth. How does that come to us in a very practical way? It comes to us this way, folks. There are not many saviors. There's not even two. There's only one. The fullness of God resides in Christ. God did not give life-changing power to multiple people. Only to Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. 
Now today in our modern society of America, we have a great area that we look to for salvation in life. We don't think of it in terms of eternal salvation, but we do think about it in terms of help for life right now. And that area is what we commonly call psychology. I had a discussion with a fellow pastor, a man raised in our fellowship of churches, in which he said this, I believe God has revealed truth through Sigmund Freud. Now you stop and say, well, boy, that sounds kind of goofy. I hope that's what you're saying. But you see, we don't often put the words together in that kind of a sentence, but that's what we believe if we believe that outside of God's Word, we can go over here to a field called psychology, or we can go over here to a field called philosophy and find some truth for life. When God says, in Him, in Jesus Christ, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, it's all there. It's all there. There is no other Savior in a religious sense. There is no other Savior in a secular sense of some kind of philosophy or psychology. And he goes on to explain this in verse 15. He refers back to the Apostle John. We'll talk about him some more in a couple of weeks. Or excuse me, the John the Baptist. But we skip over it to verse 16, which says this. And of his fullness we have all received and grace for grace. Jesus Christ is full of two things, grace and truth. He has the fullness of the Godhead in terms of grace and truth. What does grace and truth mean to us? Grace is God's loving care for us. It's expressed in these words that are so classic from, that we all memorize as children in church. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But the grace part of it really comes through in verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. I'm so glad that I do not have to preach condemnation. Yes, there is condemnation for those who reject Christ, but the great truth is Jesus Christ came into the world by God's gracious plan to offer salvation to all. It was very gracious of God to do so. Turn with me to John chapter 8. The Gospel of John chapter 8. We want to look at an example of the graciousness of God as seen in Christ. John 8, and we're going to start in verse 3. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, in the middle of the group, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. In other words, there's no doubt here. This is not hearsay. We saw it going on. And verse 5, Now Moses, in the law, commanded us that such a person should be stoned, put to death by stoning. What do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have something with which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. <laughs> you got to love that. Uh, you talking to me? Verse 7, 
So when they continued asking him, they kept it up, kept it up, kept it up. He raised himself up and he said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, which means every one of them was an adulterer, being convicted by their conscience, they went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last, and Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. And when Jesus had raised himself up and he saw no one but the woman, he said, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Jesus does not condone her adultery and say, oh, it doesn't matter that you have committed adultery. He doesn't say you're not guilty of adultery. He says, I will not condemn you for this sin. Now go and sin no more. What do we see there? We see there that God is more interested in salvation than condemnation. God will have to condemn some people to hell someday because they will refuse his gracious offer through Jesus Christ now. But it's God's desire. 1 Timothy 2 says God desires all men to be saved. And so he sends Jesus, and he sends Jesus not in condemnation, but in an offer of salvation, a free gift of forgiveness. Did this woman deserve punishment? Absolutely. Do you deserve punishment for the sin in your life? Yes, you do. But God freely gives us salvation. The second thing that we find back in John 1 that Jesus is full of, not only is he full of grace, he is full of truth. He, we saw as the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. What is the truth of God? The truth is God's power made available to us. We don't often think of truth as a source of power in this sense, but here's what God says about his own word. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. God says he has put power into his word. The reason your heart is stirred or warmed or encouraged or challenged or whatever it is when you come to church is because of that power God has put in his word. It is not me. I I was recently called by somebody who said, my relative in a far distant city has a certain problem. Can you help them? And I said, can you find a counselor for them, a biblical counselor? And I said, well, I'll try. And I looked, and I couldn't find anybody close. I said, I tell you what, I will send them a book on this subject, and I will talk with them on the phone until we get them hooked up with an individual who can help them. This person has had a lifelong problem with, with anxiety and fear to the point that, that they feel sick to their stomach when they have to go into business meetings. And sometimes they even throw up because of it. And this person got this book, and I haven't heard back from them since then. They were supposed to call me, and we're going to get together. I haven't heard back. And finally, the, the original contact called me and said, 
you know, I've, I've, I've been listening to this person and we've been talking and I can tell their whole attitude has changed. They're getting, an a, they're getting a handle on this problem after just working through a chapter and a half of the book. And I said, friend, that is the simple profundity of using God's word to help people. It's God's word that's powerful. It's not me. He didn't even need a counselor. He just needed to open the word and find those things that he was missing in his life. God's word is powerful. It is not like some other talk therapy today where you say, I'm, I know what I can do. I've got to do it. I've got to do it. I can do it. I can do it. I can do it. When you claim God's truth and you say, by God's grace, I will walk on this path. I will think in this way. God's word is powerful. He empowers it. He comes together with you to change your life. And Jesus, the word says here, was full of grace and truth. He brought us the truth of God so our lives could be changed now and for eternity. I believe this is really captured in, in 2 Peter 1, 3 through 4. As God's divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. God has put everything we need to know for life in here, and that originally came through the power and the communication of Christ Himself. Christ was full of grace and truth. He's full of it. If you heard, listened as Glenn shared the announcements, or you read our bulletin, you say, well, there's a Bible study here, there's a Bible study there, Sunday school, there's morning service, there's going to be a Wednesday night Bible study starting in a couple of weeks, going to have a class on membership, class on baptism. Why are we so much about studying the Word of God? Because that's how your life has changed. Not through anything else. Now, we want to have, we have some fellowship tonight. The men are coming to my house for study. We're going to have some fun together. There will be some tall tales told, I'm sure. But we're going to study the Word. Because nothing else is going to help us change and grow and become the people that God wants us to be, nor the people that we want to be. Jesus Christ wholly possesses grace and truth. There is no other source. And then we also see here in John 1.16 this. And of his fullness we have all received and grace for grace. Christ freely gives us grace and truth. What does he give us? Well, listen to this from Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Now, he, he, he's not talking about physical rest. Uh, I can personally attest to that. Because I think I have been living zealously for the Lord this week and I did not get as much sleep as usual. And part of it I can directly attribute to some ministry that I was engaged in. So I'm not promising that you're going to be physically rested every day if you come to the Lord. But obviously that's not what matters, is it, folks? It's the rest in our souls. It's the ability to go to bed whenever you can get there and lay down at night and say, thank God for a great day. I'm looking forward to tomorrow. And put your head on the pillow and go to sleep. That's the rest that he gives. That's the rest you can only have when you know, if I should die before I wake, I don't have to pray the Lord my soul to take. I know the Lord my soul will take. And that's why you can lay down and rest. I'm not worried about waking up dead. 
<laughs> if you wake up dead, you let me know, will you? <laughs> I'm because when I breathe my last, praise God, I'm going to breathe my next one in heaven. And I'm not worried about that. I'm really not. And that's why I sleep at night. And I'm, I'm not worried about whatever. I'm at rest. I'm at peace. And that's what God wants to give us through the person of Jesus Christ. What about this? Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. The peace of Christ is the peace in the midst of conflict, not the absence of conflict. Unless I've been under a rock, you'll never get to a point in your life where there is an absence of conflict or difficulty or trial. And that's what's so great about His peace. It's not the way the world gives it. It's in the midst of difficulty. John 10, 28, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. That's another thing that Christ gives us. And then this, John 6, 37, him who comes to me, I will in no way cast out. You cannot be too sinful for God. You just can't. Now you can reject Christ as your Savior and you can reject God's truth and I guess you could call that too sinful but that's your choice to reject. That's not a problem in coming to Him. No matter what you've done in your life, no matter where you've been, no matter how bad you think you are, Jesus says, look, if you come to me, I'll receive you and I will give to you the right to become the children of God according to John 1 verse verse 13. Christ gives all of these blessings. How does Christ give? Look at John 1, 16. Of, of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. How does Christ give to us? He gives to us grace in exchange for grace. What does that mean? I believe what it means is this as I'm going to read from an author I read this week, the preposition for means in exchange for, or as a substitute for, so that as one blessing is used, a fresh one is substituted to take its place. Consequently, the knowledge of Christ never becomes purely historic in the sense that one can contact, in the sense that one contact limited to one event is all there is of it. The growing realization of Christ in his contacts with men is convincing evidence of his illimitable fullness. God is going to give you grace for grace for grace upon grace upon grace because it is coming from a source which is full. There is no exhausting the grace of God. Now, this gift of Christ is contrasted with us. Look there at verse 17 of John 1. Let's back up to verse 16. And of his fullness we have received in grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. He draws a contrast here between law 
and grace. And if you, if you are new to Christianity or new to our church, haven't studied the Bible very much, in the Old Testament, in the time when God was working primarily with the Jewish people, he gave them a whole set of instructions in total referred to as the law. And one of the, the hearts of that law if you will, is the Ten Commandments. And we want to consider, what is the power of the law? Well, first of all, the law was able to teach morality. I remember some folks coming to our church in Tukwila because they said, our boys need to learn some morality. And I thought to myself, yep, them and you too. And uh, we're glad to have you. He became one of our deacons one day, and I guess they learned some morality. Here's the Ten Commandments from Exodus 20. You shall have no other gods before me. Now I have abbreviated these scripture verses, so not all of the illuminating material is there, but just the commands. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, or what we would call an idol. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Honor your father and your mother. You shall not commit murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. shall not covet. After reading that list, I can really see why people don't want to have them around on, on the wall of some building somewhere. God forbid we should have more morality in our country. That would be terrible. But what you need to understand today is very simply this. The law of God, according to this scripture and much other, and we're just going to look at a little bit of it, can only teach right and wrong and then can condemn people for doing wrong. Romans 10.30, or 3.20, excuse me. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Do you know what the Old Testament tells you? It tells you you're a sinner. Because the Ten Commandments were just the tip of the iceberg. Over 620 commands were given. The law teaches us morality or right and wrong. But then what we also understand is this. The law was also able and only able to teach frailty. Listen to Galatians chapter 3. What purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions or sin till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. That's a prophecy about Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. If there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. The law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. There are many, many religions today. Some of them are, they call themselves Christian. Some of them don't. But they basically teach you need to keep these rules and you will get to heaven. God says, the law was never intended to be a path to heaven. It was intended to be a path to Jesus Christ. It was our tutor. Well, how did it tutor people? It said, you're sinful. You're sinful. You can't do it on your own. You're sinful. So that when Jesus would come, people would go, oh, wow, the Savior, he's going he's to forgive our sins through his shed blood? The law was never intended to be an end game. It was designed to be temporary. God knew that no one could earn or deserve righteousness. The entire system of law and worship was designed to help God's chosen people understand that they could never be righteous enough to earn a place in heaven. 
Now recently, there has been a... Uh, there's been some things on the Christian TV. They're also available on DVD, and that's what I'm playing for you today, of using a method of using the Ten Commandments to witness to people. And I'm just going to play you a little clip of it because I think it's really great how they, how they use the Ten Commandments and show people that they're sinful. You have a total lie. Yes. What does that make you? A liar. You have stolen something. Yes. What does that make you? Uh, a thief. Have you ever used God's name in vain? Uh, yes. It's called blasphemy when you use God's name as a cuss word. Uh, Jesus said it, whoever looks at a woman and lusts after her has committed adultery already with her in his heart. Have you ever looked at a woman with lust? I, yeah, yeah, so, I have. What's your name? Kurt. Kurt. <laughs> Kurt? Kurt? Yeah. Kurt, by your own admission, you're a lying, thieving, blasphemous adulterer at heart. Man, I could have told you that before we started the interview. Oh, that sucks. So you've got to face God on Judgment Day. So if he judges you by those Ten Commandments on the Day of Judgment, do you think he'd be innocent or guilty? Wow, I don't know. I guess if I say I'm sorry now, does that, does that make a difference? No, it make any difference at all. I've got that. If you'd like to borrow that DVD, I'd be glad to loan it to you. Let's bring the rest of the lights up, too. Thanks, man. Um, but you see... Honestly, if you look honestly at the Ten Commandments, the only conclusion you can come away with is, I'm a sinner. And so don't, don't, don't desire the law from the Old Testament. God says the whole purpose was to bring us to Christ. And so here he's, he draws this contrast in John 1.17. The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So we've seen the power of the law. Now what about the power of the Lord? Well, first of all, the power of the Lord is that the sacrifice of Christ removes sin. Romans 3, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood. That word propitiation is a big word that means to satisfy the righteous demand. God looked down from heaven and he said, these people have sinned. There must be a payment for sin. There must be a punishment on sin. God is so just and holy and righteous, He can't close His eyes and say, okay, now you hurry up and sneak into heaven while I'm not looking. A lot of, you know, that guy he was just talking to says, well, you know, I mean, it's obvious he's a guilty sinner. And he says, what do you think God would say when you see Him on Judgment Day? And he has to hesitate. The reason he has to hesitate is he, he knows what he's got coming, but he doesn't want it. God set forth Jesus as a satisfaction of the payment for sin by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. There's something really interesting going on here that you need to get a hold of. God is righteous and so he must judge sin. He must punish it. And it says he forbeared or he put up with the sins that were passed over previously. What's that talking about? It's talking about that in the Old Testament time when they offered a sacrifice, the word that's used there is the word atonement. And it literally means covering. And God says that those, the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin, but it did cover that sin until Jesus Christ completely satisfied God's righteous demand. And so this shows the righteousness of God. God wasn't ignoring the sin during the Old Testament time. He was forbearing. He was putting up with it because he knew a day would come when it would be washed away by that one sacrifice sufficient for all sin of all time. 
to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. In case you don't know it, the big picture of what's going on in the world and in your life is the glory of God. And part of what is inherent in these two verses is the devil himself going up to God and saying, hey God, how come you're letting those sins go? How come you're letting those sins go? And when the sacrifice of Christ was made and the sins were paid for, God said, got anything to say now? He is now just or fair and righteous and the one who makes other people righteous through that sacrifice of Christ. Without that that unique sacrifice of the unique God-man, God would be unrighteous to let anybody go to heaven. But now he can be righteous in that. Galatians 3.22 says, The scripture has confined all under sin, that the promise of faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. The power of the Lord is this, that the sacrifice of Christ removes sin, and then that the sacrifice of Christ fulfills the law. Uh, Would you think less of me if I told you I learned something this week? that I didn't know theologically before this week? Or would you think, praise God, our pastor finally learned something. I learned something as, I, as these two things came together. Whereas um, when we talk about fulfilling the law, Jesus said, I came to fulfill the law. And I'm, you know, if you're like me, you, you've had an answer, but you kind of scratched your head. And this really helped me this week. Where is boasting that? It is excluded by By what? By law of works? No, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Or is he the God of the Jews only? Oh, come on, where are we at there? Or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, the Gentiles also. Since there is one God who will justify both the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. How do we establish the law through this? It's what I was just saying. The idea that the law demands payment for sin and the law identifies us as sinners. And so when we come to Christ, we're saying, yes, the law was right. I am a sinner. And now Christ has taken my sin away. We don't nullify the law. We say, yes, the law was right. I am a sinner. We establish the law. God demands payment for sin. God fulfilled that requirement by the death of Christ. The sin debt has been paid. He can freely give the benefits of that payment to whomever he chooses. Our Spanish lessons would have come in handy a few years ago when Sue and I went to Spain. How backward is that? We go to Spain and then later on we learn Spanish, you know. And the way things worked out by God's providence is for a week we were by ourselves over there. Had a car, had an apartment. How dangerous is that? Turned me loose in Spain with a car. My little international driver's license from the AAA. Yeah, what's that worth? Um... The last week we were there, we were by ourselves. We had certain things to do. There were some ministry things to do. There were some sightseeing things to do. And uh, not far, about as, maybe, maybe a little farther away than that little coffee shop over there, there was a bakery. Oh, baby. In, in Spain, they call the bread 
pan, P-A-N, and that's just plain bread. But then you can step up and get Parisienne or French bread. Oh, my goodness. I'd go over there in the morning. It's fresh. Get that Parisienne loaf home. It's still warm. A little butter, a little orange. They have great orange marmalade over there. Oh, but then when we wanted to really go to the grocery store, we'd get in the car and drive about 15 minutes away to, to probably the largest grocery store I've ever seen in my life. I mean, no, it was like a Fred Meyer on steroids. It was huge. I mean, the, there was a row of check stands almost as far as you can see. I'm not exaggerating. It was a huge, huge grocery store. So we bought our, our bigger groceries there. And at the very end of the week, we learned that the brick building, about 10 steps out of our door, with the word auto servicio was not a place where they worked on cars. It was a self-service grocery store. Yeah, we're walking by it every day going, I wonder what goes on in there. I guess it must be a place where they work on cars, you know. They didn't have any windows. Had a roll-up door on the front of it, a security door, and I guess it was never open when we went by. We didn't know diddly about Spanish enough to go, oh, it's a self-service grocery store. Friends, God is offering you his fullness. Over the door it says, fullness of God available through Jesus Christ. And I wonder if you know what's here. I wonder if you know what's here. Or if you're ignorantly walking by saying, nah, that can't be for me. I want to tell you today that God offers you everything Everything he has, he will give to you to change your life through the person of Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, thank you for your fullness. Come to us in the person of Christ. I'll make it ever true. Father, if there are people here today who have never put their faith in Christ as their Savior, they've never truly trusted in his work on the cross alone, Open their eyes to this wonderful truth today that you want to take their sin away. You want to forgive them. You don't want to condemn them. And help them to put their faith in you today, right now, even as we pray. And Father, for those of us who do know you, may we not seek power anywhere but in your fullness revealed through Jesus Christ. May we realize that all that we need is right there for us. I pray in his name. Amen.